Vaxi's musical podcast. I can't speak for all of you, but for most of us, we all have certain songs that are stored in our heads that immediately trigger vivid recollections of stuff that's happened in our lives. I've got a bunch of those songs, songs that I remember from high school, songs from college, songs that remind me of great times in my life and songs that were with me when things were kind of turned into shit. Part of that is because music has a tendency to piece together the roadmap that we follow for our entire lives. In the 1980s, I was listening to new stuff all the time. And so in a very real way, the songs of the MTV generation are a part of my soundtrack. Even if the song sucks, it's often attached to something, good or bad. It's just there. Thankfully, most of the songs that took me there were actually pretty good songs, and some of them were even great. Which brings me to the 1980s new wave post-punk band from San Francisco, Romeo Void. Between 1981 and 1984, Romeo Void released just three albums. But among those records were two unforgettable classics. The first one was Never Say Never. This was an early MTV classic, and as a 16-year-old boy, there was perhaps nothing more impactful than hearing a female lead singer, Deborah Ayal, sing the words, I might like you better if we slept together. Now, those lyrics might not have the same impact on me today, but in 1981, you're damn freaking right they did. By October of 1984, I was a worldly 18-year-old college freshman. So when Romeo Void released their hit single, A Girl in Trouble is a Temporary Thing, from their album Instincts, it had taken on a much different effect. It was a much more sophisticated song, and I was a much more sophisticated guy with much more sophisticated thoughts, and that song is directly attached to exactly what I'm talking about. Romeo Void would split up soon after the release of that final album. Deborah Ayal would release a couple of solo albums over the next few years, but for the most part, she's dedicated much of her life to teaching Native American art to students in New Mexico. But music has never been too far away. In fact, Romeo Void is about to release a terrific live album of a show that was recorded at the famous Mabuhe Gardens in San Francisco on November 14, 1980, approximately nine months before the release of their debut album. And it's a really interesting document of a band that was about to break big and get into my head for the next 40 years. My guest today is the wonderful Deborah Ayal, lead singer for Romeo Void on Baxi's musical podcast. Hey, Deborah, how are you? I'm doing great. Look at all those, all that music behind you. Oh, that's that's just half of it. That's the all the good. Oh, I'm sure. The all the good stuff is upstairs. Okay, got you. <laughs> I'm so happy to talk to you, and and I want to start off by telling you a, a real live story, a real story that actually doesn't happen without Romeo Void. It's um, it's late '84, early '85. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm in college, and I happen to be uh, friends with this woman who I developed this enormous crush on. And uh, this is a woman who is way out of my league. I mean, I really had no business liking this woman at all. But we had a bunch of friends, and we go to these clubs, and, and, and I, was, I was never one for, for dancing, and even less likely to ask a woman to endure the difficulty of dancing with me. But we're out one night, and the club starts playing A Girl in Trouble. Okay. And I, I, and suddenly the, the song is kicking off and you know, you know, Benjamin's saxophone is playing and suddenly she grabs my hand and says, I love this song, let's dance. And the two of us wound up dancing for like the whole night. And uh, the, the long and short of it is that relationship went absolutely nowhere. 
but it's it's still a moment in my head, and here I am 39 years later, and I still you know remember that like it was yesterday every single time I hear that song. So I have you to thank for that. So so thank you very much. Oh, good. That little <laughs> rush of excitement and surprise. And and ultimate disappointment. Yeah, it was, it was all there. But it just kind of shows you that that you know there's a connective power between you know music and and memory and and we all have those songs oh, and, yeah. and I'm sure you must you must have them too. Tell me about how music has had that kind of role for you. Well, what's interesting is one of the songs that I can recall real quickly is was only from about 15 years ago, but I remember dancing at my wedding with a really great gay friend of mine to my husband, you know, I got married about 15 years ago to him. He's from Denver and uh, we danced to I Was Made to Lover. <laughs> so every time I hear that song, I think of the wedding and, you know, it just goes right into that moment when we were young yep. together as a couple and how fun my gay friend was and, you know, just all those great <laughs> memories. Yeah. Well, you picked a good one. Any, anytime you got to it's Stevie Wonder uh, in the background of your life, that's a pretty oh, good, yeah. that's a pretty good choice. So I just got a, a right. I just oh. got a copy of the new record, by the way. Oh, good, good. And uh, I think it's just great. It's so it's it's so interesting to hear the live from Mabuhay Gardens, November fourteenth, nineteen eighty. What I really liked about it was, you know, you can start to hear the gel the the gelling of that band. Everything's kind of really coming together just before uh, you guys really start to break. And that's to me, that's pretty interesting, you know, historically. But you know what you guys would become soon after this tell, tell me about uh, about that night and, and about this recording well honestly i don't remember the specific night <laughs> i'm not sure you know what night that was i i think it might have been the night that actually my mom came and a friend of mine gabriella castellan who i'm still friends with mm -hmm. and her and my mom were both feeling you know kind of out of sorts in the club because it was a different scene for both of them but, you know, I'm like, come on, you got to come to one of my shows, you know, <laughs> and they were both there together. But I think it was that night because it was very it was pretty early on. And I don't think we were headlining. I think we were either playing second or we were opening because at the time there were so many other bands that had played longer than us mm -hmm. in San Francisco, like the Avengers and Crime and uxa and the victims i mean they just go on and on the contractions you know so i don't think we were necessarily headlining that night the sound man from the mabuhay gardens is the one who made the tape okay and he has many more tapes of other bands so i'm really glad this one got to see the light of day i think he's going to be delighted too hopefully and hopefully get approached about what other bands can you be releasing? You know, because he got our okay, just like that. We were like, oh, a live show from 1980. Great. You go for it. <laughs> well, this is about, if, I, if I'm getting the, the timeline correct, this is about nine months before you would release your first record. It's a condition yeah. of 1981. This is before you guys had written Never Say Never, before a record contract shows up with 415 or Columbia for that matter. How soon after this do you guys remember getting signed? Or, or was that was there already interest in Romeo Void by that point? I'm not sure. It <laughs> might not have even we might not have even had the interest yet. Yeah. Because it um Howie Klein from 415 Records came to saw us a few 
see us a few times, but one of the times he came, um, it, he came and saw us during a sound check and he had been hanging out with Lester Bangs. And uh, so he brought Lester Bangs to, you know, the journalist, yep. just in case you didn't know, some no, sure there's no. younger people that don't know who Lester Bangs <laughs> is, but um, he brought him to sound check and Lester told Howie, you've got to sign these guys. You need to put a record out with them. So shortly after that happened, he called me somehow. I must know. So I probably gave him my number and wanted to talk about doing a single. And when I talked to the band about it, Frank Zinkavich, the bass player, who him and I pretty much started the man, said, I think we should hold out for doing an album. Tell him we're not ready yet. <laughs> and like almost everybody would have jumped at the chance to do a four one. 415 release as a 45. I mean, yeah. a lot of bands already had. Um, but, you know, I, I I trusted Frank's instinct on that. And I thought, yeah, we do want to put out an album rather than just a 45. So I told Howie that. I think he was surprised. But he kept up, you know, in touch with us and probably kept seeing us. Because I remember Frank telling me he came to see us quite a few times and would bring different people. And then it finally was like, okay, we have enough new material, you know, to make a whole album. So um, at that, when it was getting close to that, he contacted David Kahn, who produced the first one. And at the time that he contacted David Kahn, David Kahn was just manning the front desk at a recording studio, but they gave him time like after midnight and we did our initial sort of let's feel each other out recordings with David at that Hyde Street Studios when he was like the desk guy there. Were you guys his first production credit? Or I don't pretty think close so, to it? But, um, I wouldn't. I actually don't know. Good question. <laughs> well, because I mean, that's the best question. <laughs> well, I know that's okay. But you know, but I mean, that guy went on to to produce everybody after that. I mean, everybody from uh, yeah Tony Bennett to Paul McCartney to you know, New Order and, you know, Stevie Nicks. I mean, he just did everybody. So what a, I mean, what a diverse talent he wound up uh, becoming over his career. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, we knew him when. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I, I had read in the, uh, the liner notes of the, of the album was that uh, this was one of the earlier performances by Benjamin Bossy in That's the band. Right. And, you know, right. I mean, his playing is just so, I mean, it's, it's just so much an important part of the, uh, the sound of the entire band. Tell me about him. I mean, I know he he uh, he died late last year from uh, from Alzheimer's, and and you guys wrote you and uh, Frank wrote some really beautiful, poignant recollections of of Benjamin. But but tell me about about him a bit, and and how important he was to the growth of that band. Crucial, yeah. Crucial. He was like a catalyst. He he just elevated us. Just his instincts and his. Um, preferences and his enthusiasm for spontaneity and responding like he really liked to respond to my voice so he and I live he was very in tune with me how I was feeling and you know on a different night songs sort of take on different meetings and different atmospheres and things like that I mean it, if if you're good they should you know um, because you're trying to be real in the moment. That's what really brings an audience to a band and to a singer is that they can feel 
the emotion is real, you know, and I was pretty much, you know, love that. And I could hear, you know, when someone intelligent is listening to you, you step up your awareness and insight. Right. You kind of rise to the challenge. Well, imagine being able to do that. Excuse me. Musically on stage. Yeah. You do. That was really special. Yeah. I mean, you you do hear it. It's I mean, still raw for me. I'm sorry. No, that's that's, that's quite all right. I'm, and I'm sorry to have brought up any you know, really painful no, it's for okay. you. It's, Pleasure, Dilbaldo. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think what's what's so true about about him is in a real way, and you don't see this a lot with a lot of musicians. His playing was almost like the second voice of the band. Sure. I mean, there's you there's you singing, but you know, in a way, his playing playing was was very lyrical and it's in its own and and. You definitely see that even early on in the in the live record that that you know he really was in tune to what was going on and to hear that this was one of his first performances with the band that's why I want to ask you about it because to me that's I mean that's the most fascinating part of the whole CD is listening to where he fits after j- literally just joining it's amazing yeah uh, yeah he was so good and also we were rehearsing a lot. You know, so we weren't just, we weren't that casual about it. We, you know, we had some discipline and some, you know, regular rehearsals and our whole uh, take on how to get known and seen and have people be our fans and everything was to just not turn down any gigs. So we were playing warehouse parties, you know, because we're going to art school, you know, there's plenty of warehouse parties in San Francisco and after hours and, you know, we played a after hours party after the first time the Go-Go's came to San Francisco. <laughs> they played at the Mutants Loft and we were the band at the party. And so that was to me a huge feather in our cap because, you know, both those bands were really happening and and playing a lot. And, you know, it was a thrill and an honor at that point. <laughs> You're not having been in San Francisco, you know, at the time, you know, all you can do is read about it and, and you read about Mabuhe Gardens. And I, I interviewed uh, Fritz Fox from the Mutants not too long ago. Okay. And it, it was it was great. And it's just, you know, really interesting about how that club in particular, like one of these legendary clubs, kind of like a like a cleaner, more sanitary version of CBGB's in a way. I mean, really the epicenter, uh, one of the epicenters of, of San Francisco music in the late Absolutely. 70s. Tell me about uh, about the club and, and what that, that the vibe of the place was really like. Well, you know, it was like a 1950s supper club. So it, it didn't have like a really tall ceiling. It was kind of intimate. Um, at first, when they started having punk bands, they still had all the little cocktail tables and chairs. And they rapidly took all of that out, except for a little mezzanine in the back. But it only held about 200 or 250 people. So it was not huge by any means. But it was pretty full almost seven nights a week. Wow. You know, bands were playing there all the time. And, um, you know, that we never even had to audition, though, because we luckily got asked by other bands, would you open for us? And we were like, we're not turning down gigs. Of course we'll open for you. <laughs> Is it, It's a Tuesday night. At, and they opened at 11. So it was like. Okay, Tuesday night at 11. <laughs> you know, we'll do it. You know? 
I, I our age now, I'm thinking, would you want to start a show at 11? At, 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 my, at my age, I'm like, I'm in bed by like 8 o'clock at night. Please, could never do it these days. But uh, <laughs> but it just it just sounds like it was it was a hell of a lot of fun, and the yes. the number of of bands that went in and out of of that club it really is it, it's it's staggering who was coming in and out of there. Oh yeah, and um, like I remember the first time Debo came to San Francisco mm-hmm. when they played. I think they only had the forty-five Mongoloid out. Remember yeah. that Mongoloid? <laughs> um, and they were playing a film, you know, of their bougie boy character yep. in the little playpen, and everybody wanted to be there. So there was like a line. It didn't open till eleven. The club. So there was a line to get in to Devo, where a lot of nights it'd be like, oh, it opens at 11, and you want to catch the second band, we'll get there at 1130, you know, right. it was that kind of place. You'd hang out, there was lots of cafes and bars and strip clubs and everything on Broadway in San Francisco. And I had a couple of friends who were strippers and barkers and, you know, people, you know, made a living down on that street. A lot of band members from other bands, like I remember um, one of the guys from Crime did music at one of the strip clubs, you know, so he was the DJ why the strippers stripped and they'd bring him great music and sometimes he'd suggest things for him. So a lot of the strippers had really great music, Iggy Pop and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, so it was sort of subversive for these uh, suburban, you know, People are out of town guests from the conventions to come in and see these, you know, kind of hot, punky strippers, you know, dancing to Iggy Pop. You know? Your first hit, Never Say Never, uh, you know, as a 16 as a year old boy, I mean, it was pretty uh, eye opening the first time you hear it. I mean, it's such an in your face song. But what I had completely forgotten about uh, until I started, you know, researching it a little bit was that it had been like enthusiastically aggressively pursued by Rick Ocasek to produce it. Rick Ocasek from, uh, from the cars, he became a, a, a very big supporter and a fan of yours. Tell me about uh, Rick's involvement with, with Romeo void. Well, he first heard Romeo void. It's a condition um, because one of his roadies played it on their tour bus. And so when he found out we were in town, he reached out to us and we were kind of unbelieving. What do you mean, Rick Ocasek? wants to talk to us you know there was like a message you know for our our um our road manager you know call rico casey and the band's all like what's he want what's he want you know and it's like oh he wants to produce you guys oh my goodness so we figured out a time and we were on tour at the time so i think we went away for a few weeks to do some more shows i don't think that was the last date in our tour but we what we did is we booked another show to come back to so that you can, you know, cause you have to pay for being on the road. You've got, you know, per diems, you've got gas, you've got, you know, we were staying in, you know, cheap motels most of the time. So we did that and uh, we didn't play never say never for Rick when we went to record with him because we'd only been working on it at sound check. So the night we played, after we loaded out of the studio the night we played at the spit afterwards, um, the engineer Ian Taylor came and saw us and we played it as an encore. And he came up to us afterwards. 
why didn't you guys play us that song? <laughs> and we're like, oh, we didn't consider it was ready yet. And wow. so he was like, well, I'm calling, you know, the, you know, everybody at the studio because we got to go in there tonight and load you back in so that we can have you record that song. And it wanted to become a big hit for you guys, which is it great. It really did. Yeah. yeah. That puts the uh, the band on the on the map. And and to have Rick Ocasek, I mean, you know, an interesting guy, you know, his choices of, you know, who he chose to produce beyond the cars, very, very interesting. I mean, there's you guys, there's bad brains, there's, I mean, things you suicide. would not. Yeah. Things so you, us, us knowing he had produced Suicide made him think, okay, he gets it. Because <laughs> yeah, right. if he can do Alan Vega, you know, and Suicide, we'll be in good hands. <laughs> yeah, you, because you, his music wasn't something that you'd go, oh, the cars and Romeo Boy. <laughs> no, not really, you know. I've been reading some things you know, about Romeo Void and, and there's, and I've read this a couple of times, this comparison drawn between Romeo Void, X-Ray Specs in, in the UK. I mean, two, you know, you got two very charismatic female singers, a lot of saxophone, you know, great songs all around. But when I hear those songs, I also hear a pretty significant influence of Patti Smith. And I don't know if, if that's real or just, or just perceived. How much influence did they have on you, Patti Smith and, and, and Polly Styrene? Or was that just, you know, just coincidental? Oh, no, they were a huge influence. For one thing, I really loved how direct Polly Styrene was. Yeah. Oh, bondage up yours. Thank you. You know, <laughs> I needed to hear that. And the other thing was I was always interested in poetry before Patti Smith. I quit high school and started going to college by just getting the schedule of classes and showing up on the first day out at Fresno State. There was quite a poetry scene going there that had been going there since the beat era. You know, so I, I'd gone to poetry readings of like, um, she's not a, a poet, but like Gwendolyn Brooks. And um, I had seen Allen Ginsberg and, you know, Galloway Canal reading and I was taking poetry classes to learn how to write and um from Pete Everwine and Philip Levine and Chuck Kanslicek you may not be familiar with these names but you know at the time they meant something and they were you know everyone was free verse right so it wasn't um super structured it was you know if you have something to say say it in an interesting way and you know I learned so many lessons uh taking those classes and then when I was teaching at a preschool. I was actually an assistant, a teacher's assistant. One of the people who worked there, he was the lead teacher, was from New York City. And he followed New York Rocker magazine. Mm -hmm. And he asked me, have you ever heard of like television? No. <laughs> how about the Dead Boys? No. Um, how about Patti Smith? No. So he's like, oh, I think you're going to gonna love her because I was getting the kids to write poems because you know you do whatever you can to little preschool kids they're fun and they're open yeah. completely open yeah they're good they're game to write poems so anyway he would play me records after work and we started hanging out and um Patty Smith doing poetry and rock and roll I was just completely taken with that and influenced by her and I saw Patty Smith as often as I could and, yeah, X-Respects never came to San Francisco, but Patty sure did. Patty's 
Smith, San Francisco always loved Patty Smith and well, still does. I, I find it to be really interesting because, you know, when you talk about, you know, all three of you, you know, you, Patty and, and Polly Styrene, there's a very powerful, you know, often blunt, but definitive way in which you're expressing yourself through those, through those words. What was it about that kind of honesty in the lyrics connected to you? What, I mean, what was it about Patty Smith that, that, that made a difference? You know, I liked how she made people uncomfortable. <laughs> and that was one of the lessons I learned when I was writing poetry was when you're writing in the moment of writing, if something makes you uncomfortable, keep going because you've hit a vein and that's going to be rich. You know, that's going to be worth mining. So, you know, I could play Patti Smith for my friends and they would be like, oh, my God, who is she? They're not necessarily that enthusiastic. You know, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. That was pretty radical. Yeah. You know? So and I thought, yeah, I like it. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was kind of raised that way. My mom was very progressive and she was one of uh, 102 veterinary students that graduated in 1949 from her college Pullman in Washington, but only two of them were women out of those 102. Wow. So that's who she was. She was going to just do what she wanted in the world. She's very smart and loved to read, you know, so I was really influenced by that as well. So my mom's a huge influence just as far as like, don't listen to what people say and don't let them stop you. You know, that was just the way she was. And, and she passed that value on to me. If you let other people define you, then who are you? Who did you become? You def some kind of cultural fantasy. It's actually a good lesson for somebody who has any artistic or creative ambition at all. You know, writing something that's beautiful is fine, but writing something that's, that's real and raw is even more interesting. And maybe even more artistic than just writing beautiful words that flow together, but actually coming up with an idea that may shock or, or just express something that is, that is raw. So many artists. And the personal is political. Yeah. yeah abso you know, oh, absolutely. So I read also Anna East Nin, you know, who was known for her diaries and her, you know, broad interests and her sensuality, which she completely, very candidly um, embraced. And so I was influenced by that as well. And and because, you know, it was the time of lots of politics when I was growing up. I went to lots of uh, anti-war marches and movements. I went to the weekly resistance potluck at the <laughs> SDS house, you know. Um, so people being doing political organizing and all that was definitely, you know, influenced how I thought you should be in the world. But I didn't want to write political scribes or write political songs. I wanted, I, you know, I really had that belief that real change happens when people can personally relate to change and social change. It has to be personal with you. So I just embrace that. It's a real good lesson for people to to know because it's so easy to fall into this you know complacent trap of well this these are the lyrics that people can absolutely uh, digest and that's that's not always the best creatively you know I, I started this off talking about uh, a girl in trouble 
is a temporary thing. That was the other really big hit for you guys. And it's one of those songs that, for me, kind of defines really that that whole decade. And it's like okay. I always there's something about just the groove of that song. I always it definitely takes me back. Tell me about that song and what was it like to have even a bigger hit than what you had before? I mean, you know, some people spend their whole lives hitting one hit. To have two of them is a lot more difficult than people give it credit for. I, I would have to agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly Girl in Trouble went through a lot of iterations before it was, you know, finally recorded. And I remember sitting around with a cassette of a rehearsal where they were, they would just, they would do these, you know, karaoke tapes for me of just the chord changes, you know, okay, we're going to do this four times, then we'll do this eight times, then we're going to come back to this four times and, you know, kind of go for it, find your way to make some lyrics work over these parts. So that's what happened. And, uh, I remember I had a really good girlfriend who we called Teen Troublemaker. <laughs> and she's just awesome. She's one of my very best friends. And she just happened to find her way of finding herself into lots of very provocative positions all the time. <laughs> and she was such a good friend that her and I knew um, each other well. And, and we would have to give each other pep talks, you know, when times were tough emotionally or you know, some romance or something didn't work out the way we wanted. And and so Girl in Trouble for me was kind of a pep talk type of song that I was singing to another woman, mm -hmm. you know, to let her know it's going to be okay. So it was, it had that tenderness that, you know, a lot of Romeo Boyd songs really didn't have. And the other day I was thinking, did I write any love songs? And I thought, oh, yeah, I did. Instincts is a love song mm -hmm. for sure. But, you know, not it wasn't my genre by any means. You know, I was more, you know, I'll dissect what the heck is going on, you know, in these lyrics. I was watching YouTube uh, the other day and I stumbled across your appearance on American Bandstand. And I thought, holy oh, yeah. cow, that is... Da -da -da -da. How cool. Da, 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 da. It's the least punk rock television show in history, but you're on freaking American Bandstand. And and Dick Clark kind of seemed to know what the band was all about, which I thought was. He did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind of, in a way, he seemed to almost know what was going on. He was just very open, you know, and he had that quality of like, I don't know everything. So tell me. You know, yeah. he, you know, he was curious. He wanted to find out what was up and he wanted to be in on the latest things, you know? So we were on there with new edition. Oh, you've got yep. to cool it down. <laughs> yeah. That's great though. But they but, were a very young band then. Yeah. They were like 16. But what a, what a cool video to watch, you know, you guys on, on American bands. I mean, even though it was all lip synced and everything, it's just, it, I, I just thought I got a real kick out of that. Well, if you notice, at one point, I sing away from the mic because <laughs> I want to let people know I'm not really singing, you know. <laughs> I'm in on the joke here, kind of, or I want you to be in on the joke that, yeah, we know this. So not too long after the, the third record was, was released, my understanding, and, and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm you know, wrong about this, but my understanding is that, you know, Columbia started to kind of, pivot their support away from you guys 
And it it seems as though that one of their problems was about weight. And, you know, as, as someone who has struggled with weight problems his entire life, I mean, I, I find that troubling that, you know, they would use that as some sort of liability. I mean, you guys had a top 40 hit. And people were buying that record because the music was great, not because Columbia Records had a BMI limitation in their, in their contracts. But I just yeah. tell me about that because I, I, I find that to be really maddening and, and terribly dismissive. Well, you know, welcome to American culture. Oh, I know. I know. But, you just, know? but even still. Um, welcome to people's attitude about artists. Um, yeah, we want the art, but we only want it packaged a certain way. You know, that sort of thing. And um, I think people are pretty dismissive about it, what it really takes to be a good artist and to be a good performer. And the audience always knew it was the record label who didn't know. It was the promo people. It was the marketing people. That was where the pressure was coming from, not the audience. Yeah. They weren't rejecting me because of who I was. They were embracing who I was and they could relate to me. I can't tell you how many notes I've gotten over the years. Back in the day when you got notes in the mail, you know, like I remember Howie from 415 Records and everyone saw him give me some letters that came in, you know, fan letters and that sort of thing. But over the years, people were like, when I saw you singing, you know, it gave me hope. You know, because you were doing something and you had, you know, the courage or whatever to just get up there and be yourself and, you know, sing your truth. And that helped me get through high school or through a breakup or whatever it was. And and both women and men and certainly plenty of like brown skinned, full bodied women have written me that brown skinned, full bodied men, you know, have said that. Plenty of gay guys could totally relate to me, you know, and and lesbians too. You know, we we're from San Francisco, so there was this automatic openness that we felt toward the audience and they felt toward us that, oh yeah, okay, she she's not trying to sell me herself as a product. She's trying to talk about things that matter to her, and I'm hearing it. I'm listening. And it's exactly the same way as how as we were talking about poetry and 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 lyrics that, you know, there's you know, the, the more honest you are about what you feel and who you are is a lot more powerful than trying to, you know, fit a, a particular physical mold of, of something. You know, it, it's, there's so much more that's real about what you would do than someone who is, you know, like a, a prepackaged you know, boy band or that it was just there because they look great. And I, I think you have to respect that. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I totally, I totally mean it. And, and like I said, as someone who has struggled with the same thing for most of his life, I appreciate well, honey, it. I just want you to embrace it. You know, that's it. You have to, that's all, that's all you really can do. And nobody, you know, we need to see each other more deeply. You know, I've always believed that. And, um, you know, beauty's only skin deep is true. It's real. And sexuality doesn't have to be a cultural fantasy. It can be the chemistry, the endorphins, you know. Why did she grab your hand? Because she knew you would take it, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. that's how those things work, you know. I, I always felt like I'm just looking for a yes. The no's I have no interest in because that doesn't even reflect on me. 
because that's not what I'm, I don't want things that are unattainable. I want things that, you know, merge and connect. Yeah. And I think that's how most of us are. I think real chemistry and then not to get too philosophical here, but I think real chemistry is blind to those kinds of markers. Absolutely. Same thing like when we were talking about Benjamin. You know, here you, the, the two of you are head of chemistry that yeah. had nothing to do with who you were physically or anything. There was just a, a chemical connection. How wonderful to have had that with anybody yes. in your life. It's where, I mean, it really Absolutely. is. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so I, I want to ask you about something that I also thought was really, really interesting. You know, once music kind of got put aside for you, you focused on art and on uh, art education, which I think is is wonderful. Tell me about that decision to focus on art rather than music. Well, I, I was interested in it, you know, and it was a, it was another avenue for me. And I I have often and almost always had some little musical thing going on the side. You know, so I, I, I put out my own CDs for a while. You know, and they're hard to come by because hardly anyone ever bought them. <laughs> and I didn't get, I was terrible at being my own record label, uh, even with the internet and Facebook at the time, which is, I was on there and I remember thinking, well, I have 3,000 followers. So if I make like a thousand <laughs> CDs, eventually I'll sell them. And it'd be like, and then I would find out that fans on Facebook don't, equal cd sales no they're 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 i think i met my first (laughs) cd that i invested in myself i made a thousand and it took me forever to sell 200 (laughs) and that was after i sent out like 70 or 80 of these (laughs) record stores and radio stations so now they're all collecting in your in your garage right now i still have a lot of In fact, I'm going to stop by for record store day. Yep. I'm going to stop by the night before a record store in Denver because I'm picking up my sister at the airport there. I live in northern New Mexico now. And um, I'm going to see if they'll take some off my hands. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Well, I mean, you know, the the, the Romeo Void live album is going to be out on record store day. Why, Why not get the rest of that stuff out of your house? Yeah, yeah. And I'm just really so thrilled that Liberation Hall um, came along and wanted to put it out and that Terry Hammer kept the tapes after all those years. And, you know, they're pretty darn high quality sounds. That's just really exciting to me. I would have never believed that that would happen. And that a live record by Romeo Void in or 2023 would be a thing, you know. <laughs> I'm turning 69 in like 10 days. Well, happy How birthday. Is this happening? You know, <laughs> and, and I have to also credit uh, Prime Mover Media, yeah. Randy, who put us together because he knew exactly to have me, who to have me talk to. Talking to someone like you, Baxi. Well, uh, Randy's is a, a special thing. I agree. I could have never found you on my own. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. You know, Randy's connected me uh, with a number of really great people, and 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 you are absolutely no exception. So, I've had a, 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 a absolutely delightful time talking with you today, and I and I wish you all the best of luck with the CD. It really is a lot of fun to listen to. Yeah. So the CD is available for pre-order on Bandcamp. Just look up Liberation Hall Romeo Void. It comes right up, 
And the record, the vinyl, which actually is behind me there on on my cupboard here. Um, (laughs) It's beautiful blue color. And each one is unique because it's blue and white. Oh, wow. I got this cosmic or something. So it's got it. Each one, because of how liquid works, is completely unique. Um, And it's quite beautiful. And the liner notes are so good. So just the packaging, all of Frank's photos, all those Polaroids and stuff that are on, you know, in the package, you know, that's amazing. It's just a nice little piece of of art, you know, honestly. So we're thrilled. It's great. The the name of the record is Live from Babuhe Gardens, uh, November 14th, 1980. Deborah, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Best of luck, and and uh, and thank Randy for putting us together because that was a lot of fun. Yeah, Baxi, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate Anytime. your interest. Thank you very much, thank Deborah. You. Good to see you. All right, take care. The name of the new album from Romeo Void is called Live from Mabuhay Gardens, November 14th, 1980, available on Liberation Hall Records. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like it, share it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can find me all over social media under Baxi's Fun Bag, and you can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.